calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Drabblecast, episode 407. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. On this week's show, the creation and evolution of myths and fables. It's a bit of a long story for us, so I want to jump right in. One thing I love about this story, though, is what it says about the overall idea of language, how it shapes culture, how there was a time, and it's almost unimaginable to imagine, but if you try to imagine such things, it's imaginable when we didn't have spoken language. Forget written language, that sure helped us out a lot, but spoken language. What an essential thing it is to have a vast and highly nuanced way to communicate with each other in groups. Among one of the earliest things we then started doing with this ability, of course, was telling stories. And with that, we bring you the evolution of trickster stories among the dogs of North Park after the change by Keige Johnson. Keige has won the Nebula Award in three consecutive years for her short stories Spar, Ponies, and the novella The Man Who Bridged the Mist. The Man Who Bridged the Mist was also the World Fantasy Award recipient, Hugo Award winner, and Asimov Reader's Poll Award winner. Johnson served on the Theodore Sturgeon Award jury from 1997 through 2012, and on the World Fantasy Jury in 2014. The evolution of trickster stories among the dogs of North Park after the change was originally published in the anthology Coyote Road Trickster Tales, edited by Ellen Datlow and Terry Windling. It was picked up for years' best fantasy and horror, edited by Datlow, Kelly Link, and Gavin J. Grant. The story was nominated for the Sturgeon, World Fantasy, and Nebula Award. Johnson included it in her collection, At the Mouth of the River of Bees. So get ready, because the change is coming. Without further ado, we bring you The Evolution of Trickster Stories Among the Dogs of North Park After the Change by Keish Johnson. 
North Park is a backwater tucked into a loop of the Kaw River. Pale dirt and baked grass, aging playground equipment, silver-leafed cottonwoods, underbrush, mosquitoes and gnats that blacken the air at dusk. To the south is a busy street. Engine noise and the hissing of tires on pavement mean the park is no retreat. By late afternoon, the air smells of hot tar and summertime river bottoms. There are two entrances to North Park, the formal one of silvered railroad ties framing an arch of sorts and an accidental little gap in the fence back where 2nd Street dead ends into the park's west side, just by the river. A few stray dogs have always lived here, too clever or shy or easily hidden to be caught and taken to the shelter. On nice days, and this is a nice day, a smell like boiling sweet corn easing in on the south wind to blunt the sharper scents, Lena sits at one of the faded picnic tables with a reading assignment from her summer class and a paper bag full of fast food. She waits to see who visits her. The squirrels come first, and she ignores them. At last, she sees the little dust-colored dog, the one she calls Gold. What'd you bring? He says. His voice, like all dogs' voices, is hoarse and rasping. He has trouble making certain sounds. Lena understands him the way one understands a bad lisp or someone speaking with a hair lip. It's a universal fantasy, isn't it? That the animals learn to speak, and at last we learn what they're thinking. Our cats and dogs and horses, a new era in cross-species understanding. But nothing ever works out quite as we imagine. When the change happened, it affected all the mammals we have shaped to meet our needs. They all could talk a little, and they could all frame their thoughts well enough to talk. Cattle, horses, pigs, minks, and dogs, and cats. And we found that, really, we prefer our slaves mute. The cats mostly leave, even ones who love their owners. Their pragmatic sociopathy makes us uncomfortable, and we bore them, and they leave. They slip out between our legs and lope into summer dusks. We hear them at night, fighting as they sort out ranges, mates, boundaries. The savage sound frightens us, a fear that does not ease when our cat Cleo returns home for just a single night, asking to be fed and to sleep on the bed. A lot of cats die in fights, or under car wheels, and they seem to prefer that to living under our roofs. And, as I said, we fear them. Some dogs run away. Others are cast out by the owners who loved them. Some were always free. Chicken and french fries, Lena tells the dog, gold. Lena has a summer cold that ruins her appetite, and in any case, it's too hot to eat. She brought her lunch leftovers, hours old but still lukewarm, half a Chick-fil-A sandwich and some fries. He never takes anything from her hand, so she tosses the food onto the ground just beyond kicking range. Gold likes french fries, so he eats them first. 
Lena tips her head toward the two dogs she sees peeking from the bushes. She knows better than to lift her hand suddenly, even to point or wave. Who are those two? Hope and Maggie. Hi, Hope, Lena says. Hi, Maggie. The dogs dip their heads nervously as though bowing. They don't meet her eyes. She recognizes their expressions, the hurt wariness. She's seen it a few times on the recent strays of North Park, the ones whose owners threw them out after the change. There are five North Park dogs she's seen so far. These two are new. Story, said the collie. Hope. Two. One dog loses her collar. This is the same dog. She lives in a little room with her master. She has a collar that itches, so she claws at it. When her master comes home, he puts a leash on the collar and takes her outside to the sidewalk. There's a busy street outside. The dog wants to play on the streets with the cars, which smell strong and move very fast. When her master tries to take her back inside, she sits down and won't move. He pulls on the leash, and her collar slips over her ears and falls to the ground. When she sees this, she runs into the street. She gets hit by a car and dies. This is not the first story Lena has heard the dogs tell. The first dog story was about a dog who's been inside all day and rushes outside with his master to urinate against a tree. When he's done, the master hits him because his master was standing too close and his shoe is now covered with urine. One dog pisses on a person, the story is called. The dog in the story has no name, but the dogs all call him or her. She changes sex with each telling. One dog. Each story starts, this is the same dog. The little dust-colored dog, Gold, is the storyteller. As the sky dims and the mosquitoes swarm, the strays of North Park ease from the underbrush and sit or lie belly down in the dirt and listen to gold. Lena listens as well. Perhaps the dogs always told these stories and we could not understand them. Now they tell their stories here in North Park, as do the dogs in Cruise Park a little to the south and so across the world. The tales are not all the same, though there are similarities. There is no possibility of gathering them all. The dogs do not welcome eager anthropologists with their tape recorders and agendas. The cats, after the change, tell stories as well, but no one will ever know what they are. When the story is done and the last of the french fries eaten, Lena asks Hope, Why are you here? The collie turns her face away. It is Maggie, the little Jack Russell, who answers, Our mother made us leave. She has a baby. Maggie's tone is matter-of-fact. It is Hope, instead, who mourns for the woman and child she loved, who compulsively licks her paw as though she were dirty and cannot be cleaned. Lena knows this story, 
She's heard it from other new strays of North Park, all but Gold, who has been feral his whole life. Sometimes we think we want to know what our dogs think. We don't. Not really. Someone who watches us with unclouded eyes and sees us for who we really are is more frightening than a man with a gun. We can fight or flee or avoid the man, but the truth sticks like pine sap. After the change, some dog owners feel a cold place in the pits of their stomachs when they meet those pets' eyes. Sooner or later, they ask their dogs to find new homes. They forget to latch the gate. They force the dogs out with curses and the ends of brooms. Or the dogs leave, unable to bear the look in their master's eyes. The dogs gather in parks and gardens, anywhere close to food and water where they can stay out of people's way. Ten blocks away, Cruz Park is big, fifteen acres in the middle of town. Thirty or more dogs have already gathered there. They raid trash or beg from their former masters or strangers. They sleep under the bushes and the bandstand and the inexpensive civic sculptures. No one goes to Cruz Park on their lunch breaks anymore. In contrast, North Park is a little dead end. No one ever did go there, so no one worries much about the dogs. Yet. Three. One dog tries to mate. This is the same dog. There is a female he very much wants to mate with. All the other dogs want to mate with her too, but her master keeps her in a yard, surrounded by a chain-link fence. She whines and rubs against the fence. All the dogs try to dig under it, but its base is buried too deep. They try to jump over, but it is too tall for even the biggest or most agile of dogs. One dog has an idea. He finds a cigarette butt on the street and puts it in his mouth. He finds a shirt in a dumpster and pulls it on. He walks right up to the master's front door and presses the bell button. When the master answers the door, one dog says, I'm from the men with white trucks. I have to check your electrical statico pressure. Can you let me in your yard? The man nods and lets him go on back. One dog takes off his shirt and drops the cigarette and mates with the female. It feels very nice, but when he is done and they are still linked together, he starts to whine. The man hears this and comes out. He's very angry. He puts one dog to sleep. The female tells one dog, You would have been better off if you'd found another female. The next day after classes, hot again and heavy with the smell of cut grass, Lena finds a dog. She hears crying and crouches to peek under a hydrangea, its blue-gray flowers as fragile as paper. 
It's a Maltese, its filthy fur matted with twigs and burrs. There are stains under her eyes, and she is moaning with the terrible sound of an injured animal. The Maltese nervously comes to Lena's outstretched fingers to the murmur of her voice. I won't hurt you, Lena says. It's okay. Lena picks the dog up carefully, feeling the dog flinch under her hand as she checks for injuries. She knows already that the pain is not physical. She knows the dog's story before she even hears it. The house nearby is massive, a graceful collection of Edwardian gingerbread work and oriel windows and green roof tiles. The garden is large, with a low fence just tall enough to keep a Maltese in or out. A woman answers the doorbell. Lena can feel the Maltese vibrate in her arms at the sight of the woman. Excitement, not fear. Is this your dog? Lena asks with a smile. I found her outside, scared. The woman's eyes flicker to the dog and away, back to Lena's face. We don't have a dog, she says. In those words, Lena has already seen how this conversation will go, in the denials and the tangled fear and anguish and self-loathing of the woman. Lena turns away in the middle of the woman's words and walks down the stairs, the brick walkway, through the gate and north toward North Park. The dog's name is Sophie. The other dogs are kind to her. One story goes that when George Washington died, his will promised freedom for his slaves, but only after his wife had passed on. A terrified Martha freed them within hours of his death. Though the dogs love us, thoughtful owners can't help but wonder what they think when they sit on the floor beside our beds as we sleep, teeth slightly bared as they pant in the heat. Do the dogs realize that their freedom hangs by the thread of our lives? The curse of speech, the things they could say and yet choose not to, makes that thread seem very thin indeed. Some people do keep their dogs, even after the change. Some people have the strength to love, no matter what. But many of us only learn the limits of our love when they have been breached. Some people keep their dogs, but many do not. And the dogs who stay seem to never tell stories. Four. One dog catches possum. This is the same dog. She's very hungry because her master forgot to feed her, and there's no good trash because the possums have eaten it all. If I catch the possums, she says, I can eat them now and then the trash later. She knows that possums are very hard to catch, so she lies down next to a trash bin and starts moaning. Sure enough, when the possums come to eat trash, they hear her and waddle over. Oh, oh, the dog moans. I told the rats a great secret, and now they simply won't let me rest. The possums look around, but they don't see any rats. Rats? Where are they? The oldest possum says. One dog says, Everything I eat ends up in a place inside me, like a giant garbage heap. I told the rats and they snuck in, and they've been in there ever since. And then she let out a great howl. Oh, their cold feet are so horrible. 
The possums think for a time, and then the oldest says, This garbage heap, is it large? Oh, huge, one dog says. Are the rats there fierce, says the youngest? Not at all, one dog tells the possums. If they weren't inside me, they wouldn't be any trouble at all, even for a possum. Oh, I can feel one dragging bits of bacon around now. After whispering amongst themselves for a time, the possum says, We can go in and chase out these rats for you, but you must promise not to hunt us ever again. If you catch any rats, I'll never eat another possum, she promises. One by one, the possums crawl into her mouth. She eats all but the oldest, who is too tough and stringy to be worth it. This is much better than dog food or trash, she says. Dogs love us. We have bred them to do this for ten thousand, a hundred thousand, a million years. It's hard to make a dog hate people, though we have at times tried with our junkyard dogs and our attack dogs. It is another day, just at dusk, the sky an indescribable violet. Lena has a hard time telling how many dogs there are now, ten or twelve, perhaps. The dogs around her snuffle, yip, bark. One moans, the sound of a husky trying to howl. Words float up, dry, bite, food, piss. The husky continues its moaning howl, and one by one the others join in with drawn-out barks and moans. They're trying to howl as a pack, but none of them quite knows how to do this. It is a wolf secret, and they do not know any more of those. Sitting on a picnic table, Lena closes her eyes to listen. The dogs out-yell the trees' restless whispers, the river's wet sliding, even the hissing, roaring street. Ten dogs, maybe fifteen. Lena can't tell because they're all around her now, in the brush, down by the Caw's muddy bank, behind the cottonwoods, behind the tall fence that separates the park from the street. The misinformed howl, the hint of killing animals gathered to work efficiently together. It awakens a monkey place somewhere in her amygdala, or somewhere even deeper, stained into her genes. Adrenaline hits, hot as panic. Her heart beats so hard that it feels as though she's torn it. Her monkey self opens her eyes to watch the dogs through pupils constricted. It clasps her arms tight over her soft belly to protect the intestines and liver, which are the first parts eaten. It tucks her head between her shoulders to protect her neck and throat. She pants through bared teeth, fighting a keening noise. Several of the dogs don't even try to howl. Gold is one of them. The howling would have defined them before the poisoned gift of speech, but the dogs have words now. They will never be free of stories, though their stories just might free them. Gold may understand this. They were wolves once, ten thousand, a hundred thousand, a million years ago, and before we were men and women, we were monkeys and fair game for them. 
After a time, we grew taller and stronger and smarter, human eventually. We learned about fire and weapons. If you can tame it, a wolf is an effective weapon, a useful tool. That is, if you can keep it. And we learned how to keep wolves close. After a thousand heartbeats fast as birds, long after the howling has decayed into snuffling and play barks and speech, Lena eases back into her forebrain, alive and safe, but not untouched. Gold tells a tale. Five. One dog tries to become like men. This is the same dog. There is a party, and people are eating and drinking and using their clever fingers to do things. The dog wants to do everything they do, so he says, Look, I'm human, and he starts barking and dancing around. The people say, You're not human. You're just a dog pretending. If you wanted to be human, you'd have to be bare, with just a little hair here and there. One dog goes off and bites his hairs out and rubs the places he can't reach against the sidewalk until there are bloody patches where he scraped his skin as well. He returns to the people and says, Now I am human, and he shows his bare skin. <laughs> that is not human, the people say. We stand on our hind legs and sleep on our backs. First you must do these things. One dog goes off and practices standing on his hind legs and no longer whimpers when he does it. He leans against a wall to sleep on his back, but it hurts and he does not sleep much. He returns and says, Now I am human, and he walks on his hind legs from place to place. That's not human, the people say. Look at these, we have fingers. First you must have fingers. One dog goes off and he bites at his front paws until his toes are separated. They bleed and hurt and do not work well, but he returns and says, Now I am human, and he tries to take food from a plate. That's not human, say the people. You must also dream as we do. Well, what do you dream of, the dog asks. Work and failure and shame and fear, the people say. I will try, the dog says. He rolls onto his back and sleeps. Soon he is crying out loud and his bloody paws beat the air. He is dreaming of all that they told him. That dog is making too much noise, the people say. And they kill him. Lena calls animal control the next day, though she feels like a horrible traitor in doing this. The sky is sullen with the promise of rainstorms, and even though she knows that rain is not such a big problem in the life of a dog, she worries, remembering her own dog when she was a little girl who had been so terrified of thunder. So she calls. The phone rings 14 times before someone picks up. Lena tells the woman about the dogs of North Park. Is there anything we can do for them? 
The woman barks a single, unhappy laugh. <laughs> I wish. People keep bringing them in. Been doing that since right after the change. We're backed up to the rafters here, and they still keep bringing them in. Or just dumping them in the parking lot if they're too chicken shit to come in themselves. So, Lena begins, but she has no idea what to ask. She can see the scene in her mind, a hundred or more terrified, angry, confused, grieving, hungry, thirsty dogs. At least the dogs of North Park have some food and water, and the shelter of the underbrush at night. The woman continues, These dogs, they can't take care of themselves, and we don't have the resources. So what do you do? Lena interrupts. You just put them to sleep? If we have to, the woman says, and her voice is so weary that Lena wants to suddenly comfort her. They're in the runs, four and five in each one, because we don't have anywhere to put them. And we can't put them outside because the paddocks are all full. And they tell these... these stories. What's going to happen to them? Lena means all the dogs, now that they have speech, now that there are equals... Oh, hun, I don't know. The woman's voice trembles. But I know we can't save them all. Why do we fear them now, once they've learned speech? They're still dogs, still subordinate to us. It doesn't change who they are or their loyalty. It's not always fear we run from, I guess. Sometimes it's shame. Six. One dog invents death. This is the same dog. She lives in a nice house with people. They do not let her run outside a fence, and they did things to her so that she could not have puppies. But they feed her well and are kind, and they rub places on her back that she can't reach. At this time, there is no death for dogs. They live forever. After a while, one dog becomes bored with her fence and her food and even the people's pats, but she can't convince the people to allow her outside the fence. There should be death, she decides. Then there would be no need for boredom. How do the dogs know things? How do they frame an abstract thought like thank you, or a collective concept like chicken? Since the change, everyone has been asking that question. If awareness is dependent on linguistics, an answer is that the dogs have learned to use words so that the words themselves are the frame they use. But still it is our frame, our language that they use. They are not free of it any more than we are. It is a moonless night, and the hot, wet air blurs the streetlights, so they illuminate nothing but their own glass globes. Lena is there, though it is very late. She no longer attends her classes and has switched to the dog schedule, sleeping the afternoons away in the safety of her apartment. She cannot bring herself to sleep in the dog's presence. In the park, she is taught as a strung wire, a single monkey among wolves, but she returns each dusk and listens, and sometimes speaks. There are at least fifteen dogs now, though she sure more hide in the bushes, doze or prowl for food. 
I remember, a voice says hesitantly. Remember is a frame. They did not remember before the word, only lived in a series of nows longer or shorter in duration. Memory now breeds resentment, or so we fear. I had a home, food, a warm place, something I chewed, a blanket, a woman and a man, and she gave me all these things. She patted me. Voices in assent, pats remembered. But she wasn't always nice. She sometimes yelled. She took the blanket away, and she'd drag at my collar until it hurt sometimes. But when she made food for herself, she'd put a piece on the floor sometimes for me to eat. Beef, it was. And that was nice. Another voice in the darkness. Beef, that is hamburger. The dogs are trying out the concept of beef and the concept of hamburger, and they are connecting the two things. Nice is not being hurt, a dog says. Not nice is collars and niches. And rules. Being inside and only coming out to shit and piss. People are nice and not nice, says the first voice. Lena finally sees that it belongs to a small, dusty black dog sitting near the roots of an immense oak. Its enormous fringed ears look like radar dishes. I learned to think, and the woman brought me here. She was sad, but still she threw stones at me until I ran away, and then she left. A person is nice and not nice. The dogs are silent, digesting this. Lena, Gold says, how can people be nice and not nice? I don't know, she says, because she knows the real question is, how could they stop loving us? The answer even Lena has trouble seeing is that nice and not nice have nothing to do with love. And even loving someone doesn't mean you can share your house and the fine thread of your life, or sleep safely in the same place. Seven. One dog tricks the white truck man. This is the same dog. He is very hungry and looking through the alleys for something to eat. He sees a man with a white truck coming towards him. One dog knows that the white truck men catch dogs sometimes, so he's afraid. He drags some old bones from the trash, and he heaps them up and settles upon them. He pretends not to see the white truck man, but says loudly, Brrr, Boy, that was a delicious man I just killed, but I'm still starved. I hope I can catch another. Well, that white truck man runs right away. But someone was watching this from her kitchen window, and she runs out to the white truck man and tells him, One dog never killed a man. That's just a pile of bones from my barbecue last week, and he's making a mess out of my backyard. Come, catch him. The white truck man and the barbecue person run back to where one dog is still gnawing on one of the bones in the pile. 
He sees them and guesses what has happened, so he's afraid. And he pretends not to see them and says loudly, I'm still starved. I hope that barbecue person comes back soon with that white truck man I asked her to get me. The white truck man and the barbecue person both run away, and he does not see them again that day. Why is she here? It's one of the new dogs, a lean mastiff cross with a limp. He doesn't talk to her, but to gold. But Lena sees his anger in his liquid brown eyes, feels it like a hot scent rising from his back. He's one of the half-strays, an outdoor dog who lived on a chain. It was no effort at all for his owner to unhook the chain and let him go. No effort for the Mastiff to leave his owner's yard, drift across town killing cats and raiding trash cans, and end up in North Park. There are thirty dogs now, and maybe more. The newcomers are warier now around her than the earlier dogs. Some, the ones who have taken several days to end up here, dodging police cruisers and pedestrians, are actively hostile. She's no threat, Gold says. The Mastiff says nothing, but approaches with head lowered and hackles raised. Lena sits on the picnic table's bench and tries not to bare her teeth and scratch and run. The situation is changed, like the air before a thunderstorm. Gold is no longer the pack's leader. There's a German shepherd dog who holds his tail higher and has status like the one who tells stories. The German shepherd doesn't care whether Lena's there or not. He won't stop another dog from attacking if it wishes. Lena spends much of her time with her hands flexed to bear claws that she doesn't have. She listens, that's all, says Hope, frightened Hope, standing up for her, and brings food sometimes. Others speak up. She got rid of my collar when it got burrs under it. She took the tick off me. She stroked my head. The mastiff breath on her ankles is hot, his nose wet and surprisingly warm. Dogs were once wolves. Right now this burns in her mind. She tries not to shiver. You're sick, the dog says at last. I'm well enough, Lena says. Just like that, the dog loses interest and turns back to the others. Why does Lena come here at all? Her parents had a dog when she was a little girl. Ruthie was so obviously grateful for Lena's love at the home she was offered. The old quilt on the floor, the dog food that fell from the sky twice a day like manna. Lena's parents were kind and generous, denied Ruthie's needs only when they couldn't help it, paid for her medical bills without too much complaining, didn't put her to sleep till she became incontinent and began to mess on the living room floor. Even we dog lovers wrestle with our consciences. We promised to keep our pets forever until they died, but that was from a comfortable height, where we were the masters and they were the slaves. It is said that some Inuit groups believe all animals have souls, except for dogs. 
This is a convenient stance. They could not use their dogs as they do. Beat them, work them, starve them, eat them, feed them to one another. If dogs were men's equals. Or perhaps they could. Our records with our own species is not exactly exemplary. 8. One Dog and the Eating Man This is the same dog. She lives with the eating man, who eats only good things, while one dog has only dry kibble. The eating man is always hungry. He orders a pizza, and he is still hungry, so he eats all the meat and vegetables he finds in the refrigerator. So he opens up all the cupboards and eats the cereal and noodles and flour and sugar in there, and he is still hungry. There is soon nothing left, so he eats all of one dog's dry kibble, leaving nothing for one dog. So one dog kills the eating man. It was him or me, one dog says. The eating man is the best thing one dog has ever eaten. Lena has been sleeping the days away so that she can be with the dogs at night when they collect. So now it's hot dusk, a day later, and she's just awakened in tangled sheets in a bedroom with flaking walls, the sky a hard haze, air warm and wet as laundry. Lena is walking past Cruise Park on her way to North Park. She has a bag with a loaf of day-old bread, some cheap sandwich meat, and an order of french fries. The fatty smell of fries sticks to her nostrils. Gold never gets them anymore unless she saves them from the other dogs and gives them to him specifically. She thinks nothing of the blue and red and strobing white lights ahead of her on Mass Street until she gets close enough to see that this is no traffic stop. There's no wrecked car, no distraught student who turned left across traffic because she was late for her job and got T-boned. Half a dozen patrol cars perch on the sidewalks around the park, and she can see reflected lights from others through the park's shrubs. Policemen stand around in clumps like dead leaves, caught for a moment in an eddy and released according to some unseen current. Everyone knows Cruz Park is full of dogs, 60 or 70 according to today's editorial in the local paper, each one a health and safety risk, but at the moment very few dogs are visible, and none look familiar to her, either as neighbors' former pets or wanderers from the North Park pack. Lena approaches an eddy of policemen. Its elements drift apart, rejoin other groups. Cruise Park is closed, the remaining officer says to Lena. He's a tall man with a military cut that makes him look older than he is. It's no surprise that the flashing lights, the cars, the yellow caution tape, and the policemen are all about the dogs. There have been complaints from the people neighboring the park. Overturned trash cans, feces on the sidewalks, even one attack when a man tried to grab a stray's collar and the stray fought to get away. Today's editorial merely crystallized what everyone already felt. Lena thinks of Gold, Sophie, 
hope. They're just dogs. The officer looks a little uncomfortable. The park is closed until we can address current health and safety concerns. Lena can practically hear the quotation marks from the morning briefing. What are you going to do? She asks. He relaxes a little. Right now, we're waiting on animal control. Any dogs they capture will go to Douglas County Humane Society. They'll try to track down the owners, the ones who kicked the dogs out in the first place, Lena asks. No one's going to want these dogs back. You know that. That's the procedure, ma'am, he says, his back stiff again, tone defensive. If the humane... Do you have a dog? Lena interrupts him. I mean, did you, before this started? He turns and walks away without a word. Lena runs the rest of the way to North Park, slowing to a lumbering trot when she gets a cramp in her side. There are no police cars here, but more yellow plastic police tape does stretch across the entry. Caution. She walks around to the break in the fence off 2nd Street. The police don't seem to know about the gap. Nine. One dog meets tame dogs. This is the same dog. He lives in a park and eats at the restaurants across the street. On his way to the restaurants one day, he walks past a yard with two dogs. They laugh at him and say, <laughs> We get dry dog food every day, and our master lets us sleep in the kitchen, which is cool in the summer and warm in the winter, and you have to cross 6th Street to get food where you might possibly get run over, and you have to sleep in the heat and the cold. The dog walks past them to get to the restaurants, and he eats the fallen tacos and french fries and burgers around the dumpster. When he sits by the restaurant doors, many people give him bits of food. One person gives him chicken in a paper dish. He walks back to the yard and lets the two dogs smell the chicken and the grease and his breath through the fence. <laughs> on you, he says, and then goes back to his park and sleeps on a pile of dry rubbish under the bridge, where the breeze is cool. When night comes, he goes looking for a mate, and no one stops him. Whatever else it is, the change of the animals, mute to speaking, dumb to dreaming, is a test for us. We pass the test when we accept that their dreams and desires and goals may not be ours. Many people fail this test, but we don't have to. And even failing, we can try again and again and pass at last. A slave is trapped, choiceless and voiceless, but so is her owner. Those we have injured may forgive us, but how can we know? Can we trust them with our homes, our lives, our hearts? Animals did not forgive before the change. Mostly they forgot. But the change brought memory, and memory requires forgiveness. And how can we trust them to forgive us? And how do we forgive ourselves? Mostly we don't. Mostly we pretend to forget.
At noon the next day, Lena jerks awake, monkey self already dragging her to her feet. Even before she's fully awake, she knows that what woke her wasn't a car's backfire. It was a rifle shot, and it was only a couple of blocks away, and she already knows why. She drags on clothes and runs to Cruz Park, no stitch in her side this time. The flashing police cars and caution tape and men are all still there, but now she sees dogs everywhere, twenty or more laid flat near the sidewalk, the way dogs sleep on hot summer days. Too many of the rib cages are still, too many of the eyes open, dust and pollen already gathering. Lena has no words, but the men say enough. First thing in the morning, the animal control people went to Dylan's grocery store and bought fifty one-pound packages of cheap hamburger on sale, and they poisoned them all and then scattered them around the park. Lena can see the little blue styrene squares from the packaging scattered among the dogs. The dying dogs don't say much. Most have fallen back into the ancient language of pain, wordless keening. Men walk among them shooting the suffering dogs, jabbing poles into the underbrush looking for anyone who might have slipped away. People come in cars and trucks and on bicycles and scooters and on their feet. The police officers around Cruz Park keep sending them away. A health risk, says one officer. Safety, says another. But the people keep coming back. Or new people do. Lena's eyes are blind with tears. She blinks and they slide down her face, oddly cool and thick. Killing them is the answer, says a woman beside her. Her face is wet as well, but her voice is even, as though they are debating this in a class, she and Lena. The woman holds her baby in her arms, with a white cloth thrown over its face. I have three dogs at home, and they've never hurt anything. Having words doesn't change that. What if that changes? Lena asks. What if they ask for real food, and a bed soft as yours, and the chance to dream their own dreams? Then I'll try to give it to them, the woman says, but her attention is focused on the park, the dogs. But they can't do this. Try and stop them. Lena turns away, tasting her tears. She should have felt comforted by the woman's words, the fact that some have not forgotten how to love animals. But she feels nothing, and she walks north, carved hollow. Ten. One dog goes to the place of pieces. This is the same dog. She is hit by a car, and part of her flies off and runs into a dark culvert. She does not know what the piece is, so she chases it. The culvert is long, and it gets so cold that her breath puffs out in front of her. When she gets to the end, there's no light, and the world smells like metal. She walks along a road. Cold cars rush past her, but they don't slow down. None of them hit her. One dog comes to a parking lot, which has nothing in it but the legs of dogs. 
The legs walk from place to place, but they cannot see or smell or eat. None of them are her legs, so she walks on. After this, she finds a parking lot filled with only the ears of dogs, and then one filled with the assholes of dogs, and the eyes of dogs, and the bodies of dogs. But none of the ears, and assholes, and eyes, and bodies, none of them are hers. So she walks on. The last parking lot she comes to has nothing at all in it, except for little smells like puppies. She can tell one of the little smells is hers, so she calls to it, and it comes to her. She doesn't know where the little smell belongs on her body, so she carries it gently in her mouth, walks back past the parking lots and through the culvert. One dog cannot leave the culvert because a man stands in the way. She puts the little smell down carefully and says, I want to go back. The man says, you can't unless all of your parts are where they belong. One dog can't think of where the little smell belongs. She picks up the little smell and tries to sneak him past the man, but the man catches her and hits her. One dog tries to hide it under a hamburger wrapper and pretend it's not there, but the man catches that too. One dog thinks some more and finally says, Where does the little smell belong? The man says, Inside of you. So one dog swallows the little smell. She realizes that the man has been trying to keep her from returning home, but the man cannot lie about the little smell. One dog runs past him and returns to our world. There are two police cars pulled onto the sidewalk before North Park's main entrance. Lena takes in the sight of them in three stages. First, she's seen the police everywhere today, so they're not a shock. Second, they are here, at her park, threatening her dogs. And this is like being kicked in the stomach. And third, she thinks, I have to get past them. North Park has two entrances. Lena walks down a side street and enters the park by the little narrow dirt path from 2nd Avenue. The park is never quiet. There's busy 6th Street just to the south, and the river and its noises to the north and east and west, trees and bushes hissing with the hot wind, the hum of insects. But the dogs are quiet. She's never seen them all in the daylight, but they're gathered now, silent and loll-tongued in the bright daylight. There are forty or more. Everyone is dirty now, all long fur is matted, anything white is dust-colored. Most of them are thinner than they were when they arrived. The dogs face one of the tables, as orderly as the audience at a string quartet, but the tension in the air is so obvious that Lena stops short. Gold stands on the table. There are a couple of dogs she doesn't recognize in the dust nearby, lying flat with their sides heaving, tongues long and flecked with white foam. One is hunched over, he drools onto the ground and retches helplessly. The other dog has a scratch along her flank. The blood is the brightest thing that Lena has seen in the sunlight, a red so strong it hurts her eyes. 
The crew's park cordon was permeable, of course. These two managed to slip past the police cars. The vomiting one is dying. She realizes suddenly that every dog's muzzle is swiveled towards her. The air snaps with something that makes her back brain bear its teeth and scream. Her hackles raise. The monkey self looks for escape, but the trees, they're not close enough to climb, and she's no climber. The road and river are far away. She is a spy in a gulag. The prisoners have little to lose by killing her. You shouldn't have come back, Gold says. I came to tell you to warn you. Even through her monkey self's defiance, Lena weeps helplessly. We already know, the pack's leader, the German shepherd, says. They're killing us all. We're leaving the park. She shakes her head, fighting for breath. They'll kill you. There are police cars on 6th. They'll shoot you however you get out. They're waiting. Will it be better here? Gold asks. They'll kill us anyways with their poisoned meat. We know that. You're afraid. I'm not, Lena starts, but he breaks in. We smell it on everyone. Even the people who take care of us or feed us. Even you. We must leave. They'll kill you, Lena says. Yes, but some of us may make it. Wait, maybe there's a way, Lena says, and then I have stories. In the stifling air, Lena can hear the dogs pant even over the street noises. People's stories are only good for people, Gold says at last. Why should we listen to yours? We made you into what we wanted. We owned you. Now you are becoming what you want. You belong to yourselves, but we have stories and we learn from them, and maybe they'll help you too. Will you listen? The air shifts, but whether it is movement in the air or simply the dog shifting, she cannot tell. Ugh, tell your story, says the German shepherd. Lena struggles to remember half-read textbooks from a sophomore course on folklore, framing her thoughts as she speaks them. We used to tell stories about a coyote. The animals were here before humans were, you see, and coyote was one of them. He did a lot of stuff, got in a lot of trouble, fooled everyone. Hey, I know about coyotes, a dog says. There were some near me where I used to live. They sometimes eat puppies. I bet they do, Lena says. Coyotes eat everything. But this wasn't a coyote. It's coyote. The one and only. The dogs murmur. She hears them work it out. Coyote is the same as this is the same dog. So, Coyote disguised himself as a bitch so that he could hang out with a bunch of other females just to mate with them. He pretended to be dead, and when the crows came down to eat him, he snatched them up and he ate every one. Then, when a greedy man was keeping all the animals for himself, Coyote pretended to be a very rich person and bought and freed them all so that everyone could eat. He... She paused to think looks down at the dogs all around her. 
the monkey fear is gone. She is the storyteller, the maker of thoughts. They will not kill her now, she knows. Coyote did all these things, and a lot more. I bet you will think of some, too. I have an idea of how to save you, she says. Some of you might die, but some chance is better than no chance. <laughs> Why should we trust you? says the Mastiff Cross, who's never liked her, but the other dogs seem to be with her. She feels this, and she answers, Because this trick, maybe it's one even good enough for Coyote. Will you let me help? We people are so proud of our intelligence. It makes it that much easier to trick us. We see the white truck men and we believe they're expecting whatever it is we expect them to see. Lena goes to U-Haul and rents a pickup truck for the afternoon. She digs out a white shirt she used to wear when she ushered at a concert hall. She knows clipboard without printout means official responsibilities, so she throws one on the dashboard of the truck. She backs the U-Haul up to the little entrance on 2nd Street. The dogs slip through the gap in the fence and scramble into the bed. She lifts up the ones that are too small to jump that high, and then they arrange themselves carefully flat on their sides. There's a certain amount of snapping and snarling as later dogs step in on ears and rib cages of earlier dogs, but eventually everyone is settled, everyone's able to breathe a little, every eye is shut. She pulls onto 6th Street with a truck heaped with dogs. When the police stop her, she tells them a little story. Animal control has too many calls these days. Cattle loose on highways, horses leaping fences that are too high and breaking legs, and goodness, the dogs, the scores and scores of dogs at Cruise Park. Animal control is renting trucks now, wherever they can find. The dogs of North Park were slated for poisoning this morning. Well, I didn't hear about this in the briefing. One of the policemen says. He pokes at the heap of dogs in the back with a club. They shift like dead meat. They reek. An inexperienced man might not even recognize the stench as mingled dog breath and shit. Lena smiles, baring her teeth. I'm on my way back to animal control, she says. They have an incinerator. She waves an open cell phone at him and hopes he does not ask to talk to whoever's in the line, because no one is. But people believe stories, and then they make them real. The officer pokes at the dogs one more time and wrinkles his nose and waves her on. Clinton Lake is a vast place, trees and bushes and impenetrable brambles. Beyond that, open country in every direction. When Lena unlatches the pickup's bed, the dogs drop stiffly to the ground and stretch. Three died in the trip from overheating, stifled beneath the weight of so many others. Gold is one of them, but Lena does not cry. She knew she couldn't save them all, but she has saved enough of them, and that has to be enough. 
and the stories, they will continue. Stories do not easily die. The dogs can go wherever they wish from here on, and they will. They and all the other dogs who have tricked or slipped or stumbled to safety will spread across Kansas, spread across the world. Some will find homes with men and women who treat them not as slaves but as friends, freeing themselves in the process. Lena herself returns home with little shivering Sophie and sad, sad hope. Some will die killed by men and cougars and cars and even other dogs. Others will raise litters. The fathers of some of those litters will be coyotes. Eventually, the changed dogs will come to find their place in this changed world. When we first fashioned animals to suit our needs, we treated them as though they were stories and we were the authors, and we clung desperately to an imagined copyright that would permit us to change them, sell them, and even delete them. But some stories cannot be controlled. Perhaps we start them, but then they change, and they can no longer be ours if they ever were. One dog creates the world. This is the same dog. There wasn't any world when this happened, just a man and a dog. They lived in a house that didn't have any windows to look from. Nothing had any smell. The dog shit and pissed on the paper in the bathroom, but not even this had a smell. Her food had no taste either. The man suppressed all these things. This was because the man didn't want one dog to create the world, and he knew it could be done by smell. One night, one dog was sleeping and she felt the strangest thing that a dog had ever felt. It was all the smells of the world pouring from her nose. When the smell of grass came out, there was grass outside. When the smell of shit came out, there was shit outside. And she made the whole world that way. And when the smell of other dogs came out, there were dogs everywhere. Big ones and little ones all over the world. our story. Hope you enjoyed it. Man, feel like naming my dog Gold now. Gold, the cute little storyteller. It's hard to not draw parallels to things in stories like this, which I think sometimes might be the mark of a good story. 
You just need to look back at our own stories, both in the human and historical sense, and in your own personal experience of you and people you know. How do we deal with inconvenience? How can people be nice and not nice? What do we do with the shame pointed back at us? That's the procedure, it's easy to say, like the officer, stiff and defensive. You can look at any social media platform today and quickly observe the poison of language, as Keyes Johnson calls it. And in today's context, it's not just language that comes into play, but in a lot of ways it's about reach. The change has already happened, folks. It's called the internet and the digital age. And fortunately, it's only affected humans and some species of waterfowl and cold water salamanders who mostly just gripe about not having good signal out there and their streams, etc., and how it's hurting their blog subscribers. And I mean, I get that because you haven't heard of them. So, I mean, valid point. But it's rocked our world in a pretty monumental way, I think. Most of us don't consider that when we text one dog from Japan within seconds, thanks to our space machines in the sky, we're, you know, doing something magical there. Language and communication has come a long way, but more importantly, access has come a long way. And this story isn't a dog story, or isn't just a dog story, I should say. It's a story about us, the tense monkeys with soft bellies that hold tasty livers and intestines. It's a story about being loved and being controlled, and knowing the difference between the two. It's a story about the myths and fables that we ourselves use to try to make sense of things. What truths do we allow ourselves to believe and promote, or ignore or edit, through phases of jaded cynicism, or peppy optimism. And that leads us to our 100-character story winner this week, which we love to close our shows out with and which we hold in our discussion forums each week at forums.drabblecast.org. Go check them out. It's a good time. When you get in there, you'll find all sorts of cool stuff like Drabble news and story discussion, but what you want to find is the Twabble section there and community stories. That's where we pick our winners each week. And our winner this week is Big Dumb Yak. And here it goes. In the long winter following the Great Uplift, the animals moved into our homes In the springtime, we were told to leave. And that was it. A great story told in 100 characters, not counting spaces. Go to our forums at forums.drabblecast.org. In the Twabble section, we might pick yours for next week's winner. And we post them out early each week on Twitter and social media. Follow us at Drabblecast. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, and post different content to each of those. And we love keeping in touch with y'all. Alright folks, that's our show this week. Drabblecast is brought to you with a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial no derivatives license, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Write us a review on iTunes, or wherever. You know, I say this each week, but really, if you have an iTunes account, take a quick minute and search for Drabblecast in the iTunes store. Write us a review. It totally helps us out, both in the sense that it boosts our reach majorly, and it gives us good touchy-feelies to motivate 
educate us on. Or, you know, if you hate us, it gives us good general feedback that's worth hearing. And go f*** yourself. <laughs> Just joking. If you enjoyed the Drabblecast, you can find support options off our website, Drabblecast.org. We rely on your generous support to keep the show going each week in all of its glory. Anything you can give, whether it be a monthly subscription option, which gives you premium content, or just a one-time donation, we greatly appreciate it. Special thanks to our episode artist this week, Joe Bosch. Joe's an illustrator and writer from Somerville, Massachusetts. He'd be nothing without the support of his girlfriend, Kat, and the Dark Lord, Satan. His comics can be viewed at donotreadcomics.com, which, I don't know, I'm not going to encourage you to read that, but it's kind of begging to be read. Our program this week was brought to you by Tom Baker, Sandra O'Dell, Zimmerman Bledsoe, The Reason a Sink in a Truck Stop Bathroom Won't Drain, Melissa Harvey, Samantha Henderson, Bo Kyer, Jason Smith, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you, boy, that was a delicious man I just killed, but man, am I still starved. I sure hope I can find another one. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.